0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 49 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, some good news if you're a careful driver or have a well run small business. We'll find out why remote doctor consults, or what they call telemedicine, is here to stay. An update on the search for an effective way to identify those with COVID 19 antibodies. The chief executive of Sun International explains what the opening up of hotels means for a group on whom 20,000 livelihoods depend. And we take another look at dexamethasone, the anti-inflammatory drug made in South Africa by Aspen Pharmacare, which is being hailed globally as a breakthrough, saving the lives of 30% of critically ill coronavirus patients during a large trial in the UK. Inside COVID-19, from News. In today's COVID-19 headlines, South Africa's confirmed new daily coronavirus infections were above 4,000 for only the second time on Wednesday. That reversed two days of declines. Mortalities, however, were a modest 49 on the day, the third daily drop. But experts, including South Africa's Minister of Health, fear that a storm is about to intensify, with infections and mortalities set to rise sharply in the next four weeks. Respected analytical website COVID-19-projections.com, which offers forecasts for coronavirus deaths for all countries, expects South Africa's total mortalities to reach 32,000. That's an almost 20-fold increase from the current 1,674. Globally, total cases are now at 8.5 million and deaths above 450,000. South Africa's 80,000 confirmed infections to date puts it at 21st on the global list but it is recording the ninth highest daily increase in infections. On the economic front, further evidence of the deep damage done by the lockdown is evident in the latest FNB-BER business confidence index which fell to a mere 4 points out of a possible 100 in the second quarter of 2020. This is the lowest level on record, and like the more broadly based business confidence index, which came in at five points, the first time that it has registered a single digit return. Respondents to the survey, who are hardware retailers, subcontractors and main contractors, say that they expect it to get even worse, with a further contraction in building activity anticipated during the three months to end September.
1: Inside COVID nineteen from
0: Biz News. Anton ossip has been a very busy chief executive of Discovery Insure. You would think that during lockdown, Anton, there wouldn't be too many new products. But my goodness, three in a week! <laughs> Let's start off with a motors financial services deal that you've put together on warranties. Did this come through because of COVID nineteen?
2: No, so firstly, good evening, Alex. So it's um it's been a very busy time. In fact, we've launched close on 20 new product and or product variations since the start of the lockdown on the 27th of March, because we needed to deal with all sorts of changes in the way people drive and how they drive and and ways to help people fund their premiums and afford their premiums, and you know all that led to a lot of very very innovative thinking from the team and and quick delivery, which is, has been fantastic. And this particular product um didn't come as a result of COVID. It's something that we have been working on it for some time, but it's, it's probably as applicable as ever during COVID, where people will likely be extending the use of their car, not replacing that old car with a new car. I mean, therefore, their cars will be going out of warranty more than ever before. You know, really well in excess of 50% of, of insured cars are out of warranty. And then we saw that this was an opportunity to come up with a, a product that was innovative from utilizing what we've done with telematics over the last nine years to create you know, some real differentiation for good drivers. As well as we always recognize that the warranty space hadn't really been disrupted for a long time and therefore the need to, to do something different, which, which I can
0: explain. Telematics would presumably tell you a lot about what's going on in the moving parts of a vehicle. Correct.
2: So how this came about was really a conversation between ourselves and Motus and Motus, you know, being the largest supplier of, of vehicles, parts, Huge experience in the warranty space and and associated products. And together, we kind of looked at it and we said, you know, there must be a correlation between how you drive and how your vehicle is going to break down and how the parts are going to wear out. You know, whether it's your clutch, whether it's your engine, the better you drive, obviously, it must have have an impact. But, you know, by having the data, we could actually we could tell that and we could tell that there was a high correlation. So that led us down this road of creating, a, we believe, the first in the world warranty telematics product, where the better you drive, the lower your premium. And the better the value proposition that we can offer you. So drive well, premium will be less, um, and we can give you better benefits, which we do in the in the form of of a service benefit. Where effectively you get a, a significant discount, uh, up to effectively 100% off of your service, up to five thousand rand a year, which pays for the vast majority of car servicing.
0: How granular is the information, Anton? And what I'm getting at here, if somebody is always riding their clutch, as you said earlier, then their clutch would pack up more or it's more likely to pack up than somebody who's not driving that badly.
2: So we can't tell someone's riding their clutch, but we can tell the acceleration and the forces applying to the vehicle, which would be a good enough proxy for someone that's aggressively driving their vehicle. Someone who's slamming on the brakes all the time because they don't drive responsibly. They want to see how, how far the car can go before it can come to a stop. And so we're not talking about someone who has to drive. You don't have to drive like a granny to take the product. Yeah, we just, we're just looking for the more responsible type of drivers and those that are used to just racing their car should pay more for warranty insurance because that's just a natural reason that they're going to be, their cars are going to be subject to more warranty claims. So it's all part of the shared value concept. Absolutely. So the, the better you drive, the lower the premium, the more we can give you back in rewards. And the other thing about it is that it's also risk rated. So a lot of the warranty market is paying the same price for very similar cars or it doesn't take into account the driver. They're better drivers and they're worse drivers. They're cars that are subject to warranty claims more than others. So we've used all the, the things that you take for granted in insurance pricing where we charge the right price for that risk. So it may be that we're more expensive on a certain type of car because that car is prone to high warranty claims. Conversely, Will be cheaper than the market for many different types of vehicles because, you know, our data tells us that that client should be paying less rather than this kind of blanket approach where the good is, the good is being subsidized by the bad.
0: Is this only for discovery Insure clients?
2: For now, we've only offering it to discovery Insure clients. That's where obviously we have the telematics data. We have quarter of a million clients. So there's a lot of clients that we can, we can offer this product to, but we certainly will consider this for the wider market in, in time. The conversation that ourselves and Motors will, will have.
0: And the partnership with MTN?
2: Yes, yeah, so this is something we launched um, today. So this is something that's in our discovery business insurance segment where we, we offer insurance products for small businesses, small and medium sized businesses. We've taken a, a very different approach to business insurance here that we don't only cover the typical risks that someone would want to be covered for, but we cover the risks of, of today, you know, social media liability risk and cyber risk and things that small businesses should actually be worrying about because your business can go, go out of business quite quickly with a with a hack on your systems or someone posting things on, on Facebook that they shouldn't. So we provide very different types of cover. We also provide a, a tool for, for businesses to analyze their business. So we worked with an organization called Endeavor. It's a global organization that helps small businesses catapult to a bigger size. And there have been some great success stories that have come out of Endeavor. So we've worked with them to really take their knowledge and put together an analysis diagnostic that companies can effectively complete. Through that, we believe they'll get information that will help them to become a better business. And our philosophy, well, our understanding is that better businesses will be lower risk businesses. So if your business is growing quickly, if your business is cash flow positive, you'll exhibit lower risk for an insurance company, and you'll be a better business you know, as for yourself and for society, employing more people. So through that, we provide a number of partnerships to help companies with tools that they need. And one of the tools is, is RT services and, and data, which every business, I mean, if you, if you ask any business, what do you need? They all need data and they need more of it and they need it to be cheaper. So it's becoming a bigger and bigger part of, of any business, no matter what industry you're in. So we approached MTN, been an incredible partner, really sort of understanding the value proposition. And effectively, we're giving a deep discount to, to companies um, on, their, on their data up to 50% off if they take out you know, fiber, broadband and other business related data services from MTN.
0: And the Endeavor connection, that's an interesting addition.
2: Yes, it's been a partner for a long time. Adrian and Barry have been involved in Endeavor from early days when Endeavor came into the country. They've mentored many of the organizations that have gone through Endeavor. And it's really been something that we've got to know quite well. They're massive globally. Lots and lots of organizations around the world have been helped by Endeavor where they their aim is to help companies access capital, small companies access capital, mentoring and support. So the likes of business leaders mentoring smaller companies and helping them to navigate complex business issues is one of the benefits. They help companies access technology. So they have a number of sort of fields that they believe if they help those businesses get access to those those sort of services, there's a better chance than, than not that the business will grow. And the whole really philosophy is small businesses can, you know, become big businesses. And what does this country need more than anything else? It needs lots of SMEs that grow and, and thrive and become the next big company to employ thousands of people.
1: Have you
0: done anything like this before? Sorry, I missed the question. Have you done anything like this before? It seems a very innovative, very different type of a partnership that you're talking about here with Endeavor and with MTN.
2: So we started it two years ago when we launched our Discovery business insurance offering, but it's taken a lot more shape over the last couple of months through this this partnership with with MTN. And the other one, which I can mention as well, is a partnership with a company called Merchant Capital. That's actually exactly the the type of company that Endeavor works with. It's a a small business in the financing space. It became an Endeavor partner, and I think through that they've had access to all sorts of, of support and help to become a more successful and in a, in a faster-growing business. I and mean, we met Merchant Capital through Endeavor, and now we've struck up another partnership with them, which is directly focused on COVID.
0: So what exactly is that one going to be offering? So what Merchant
2: Capital does is they provide loans to small businesses, typically in the retail and the hospitality and, and related sectors. So how it works is they'll provide a loan, but the loan is repayable as a percentage of credit card turnover. So instead of taking out a loan of a million rand, or 100,000 Rand or whatever the number is and interest accrues on that loan and the longer you take to pay it back, the more interest you have. How they work is they effectively recover the loan as a percentage of turnover over, they set out to do it over a certain period of time. But if turnover turns out to be less than expected, it will take longer to recover the loan and vice versa if turnover is better than expected. So they take risk. They take risk on how long it's going to take for the loan to repay because compound interest is not applicable to the outstanding loan balance. So if you think about what's happening in COVID, as a business, who knows what turnover is going to look like tomorrow? Companies may get back to on their feet quickly and they may not. And therefore that uncertainty is what I think a lot of companies face with if they take out a loan, you know, from their bank. You know, not to say that obviously there's not a place for that as well. This is a, a different type of loan that can help the business sort of reboot and then get back on their feet. If you're a restaurant that's buying trading stock that you need to to sell or or shop that you need a a trading stock to sell, they provide a loan to assist you with that. And what we've done with them is effectively we, we want to encourage the right behavior. So we want to encourage people to obviously pay back those loans. We also want to encourage people to pay their insurance premiums because, you know, right now not having insurance cover is obviously a massive risk for a company that can't afford an unexpected loss, you know, a big car accident or a fire in the factory. You can't afford that right now, particularly when your capital is under pressure. So how we're rewarding that behavior is giving a rebate effectively on insurance premiums 12 months sort of later. So companies will be able to get between 15 and 50 percent back. On their discovery business insurance premiums, if they effectively just all they really need to do is pay their loan back on time, pay their premiums on time, and effectively they're eligible for for a rebate on the insurance premiums. So it's kind of helping companies and encouraging good behaviour, which is something that we believe we could we could do at this point in time.
0: But both of these, the MTN and the Merchant Capital Partnership, sounds like a lot of research, a lot of homework has to be done before you can enter into these relationships. Who does that?
2: So we have an incredible team, an incredible product development team. They work on lots of different ideas. Not all the ideas come to fruition, but they, they really trust, they start with analyzing the need. So for example, in the, in the need with the, in the, the product we put together with MTN, it went through a lot of research to understand what do small businesses need? You know, what's the one thing that's kind of common? What's the, how can we help them? to become better businesses, which is what we want. You know, they better businesses, they're going to be low risk businesses for us as a as an insurance company. And it's it's totally kind of that shared value approach of better businesses, lower risk, good for the insurer, um, and better businesses that become good for society because they grow quicker and they employ more people. So it's this kind of you know this virtuous circle that we, we really sort of focus on across every part of our business. And they work on a number of things and then they approach partners. So obviously we've got to find the right economic model that that works for everyone that's affordable. that's sustainable. You know, we we, we like benefits that, that go for a long time, and we don't need to kind of change it much. It, it kind of it, 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 it sustains. Um And we're hoping that both these benefits will be will be long term benefits. Um the, the merchant capital one is focused more on COVID related relief. So that at, at this, you know, that structure is is, is for the immediate term. Um But uh, I'm sure there'll be other structures that we can look at down the line for for companies in terms of sustainable finance.
1: Inside
0: COVID-19, from Biz News. Linda von Tilburg is in London having a look at how things are going globally, but also keeping a very close watch on South Africa, Linda. Things are about to get pretty hairy in this country.
3: Yeah, you know what, when you spoke to families and friends a couple of weeks ago, we would tell them about cases in the UK, and they wouldn't have anybody that had it, and now I actually speak to people whose parents have it, who it seems to be more widespread, especially in Gauteng now.
0: Dexamethasone, which we spoke about yesterday, is one drug that is going to help, no doubt, uh, people who are very, very ill with uh, COVID-19, so that's... That's a a, a bit of progress. Is there anything else on the horizon that gives us hope?
3: I haven't seen any medicines, and we're actually waiting for the vaccines to see if that would make any difference. Um, but, But I haven't seen any further developments. I just saw that they've actually stopped the trials on hydroxychloroquine, saying definitely that they don't regard that as one that would help.
0: So Donald Trump's uh, punting, notwithstanding, it really hasn't uh, been enough to give the clinicians anyway uh, the, the, the confidence to treat people with it. Talking about clinicians, the whole subject of telemedicine is really interesting. Here in South Africa, it you weren't allowed until COVID-19 hit to actually use telemedicine because of certain regulations. Now that's been set to one side but how's it going around the world
3: well it seems that it's really been embraced by the west you know the national health service in england you've lived here and it was kind of not a thing there i mean the national health service is so far behind they literally they were the biggest buyer of fax machines until covid19 hit they didn't even use emails for some of their patients some of the surgeries which is so surprising and they've suddenly use telemedicine all the time. You can hardly get an appointment, a personal appointment now, and it's also really big in the United States. Well, this clip that I found on Bloomberg features Dr. Peter Alperin. He's the vice president of Doximity, who he says that telemedicine is going to be the new standard for medical care. Um, he speaks to Carol Massal and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg.
4: What we've really noticed is that, um, you know, obviously in April when everything was very much shut down, patients were coming, uh, not able to come into the office, and therefore telehealth was the was really the only way that we could see patients. Um, I do think though that that this has been a watershed moment, and the fact is is that patients like telehealth. It's convenient. It's, um, it's effective. And I think what's convinced what physicians have learned is that, um, that because patients like it, uh, and they've been able to understand how to best incorporate it into their practice. And it does vary from specialty to specialty. Um, you really can, you know, you know triage the types of patients that you need to see in the office versus the ones where a routine follow up, uh, is something that you can do via telehealth. And that's why, you know, through the, the dialer video, uh, to create this tool that is super easy to use, reliable and secure so that you can have those, those conversations with patients. And I do suspect um, that what's going to happen is that it's obviously going to come down from its peak, which was in some offices, 50, 60, 70, 80% um, right. at the peak of the, uh, the crisis. And I think it's going to decrease though, but I think it's going to set at a new level and that level, I, you know, we're, it's hard to tell anywhere from 15 to 25% is sort of what we're estimating. Um, is going to be the new normal for telehealth, which is a huge mm-hmm. increase over where it was prior to the epidemic. Um, so telehealth offers a huge number of advantages um, that that I think are going to really be um, significant improvements in the way that we've delivered healthcare. First and foremost, you can you can see patients that otherwise may not have been able to make it into your office, regardless of the epidemic so that's it's certainly more convenient from that perspective and then uh, gosh in terms of t- of uh, contact tracing you're absolutely right the ability to to be able to see a patient routinely after they've uh, they've tested been tested and tested positive perhaps for covid um, is a critical part of, you know, uh, of the, um, the containment of the epidemic is making sure that those people who have been, um, who have tested positive are able to be followed up appropriately because, um, as I think we all know by now, not everybody needs to be, uh, come into the hospital and really, but, but if you do need to go, we definitely right. want to know and telehealth is an integral part of that. What should we be thinking about when it comes to the next phase of this virus? Wow. So I completely understand people's uh, desire to get back to some sense of normalcy. I myself would love to be able to go out to dinner and and do all the things that I'd like to do and watch baseball and and all the different kinds of things. I do think, however, um, the new normal is going to be for a a significant amount of time. I think we are going to have to be wearing masks, for instance, for for a while. And I think we're going to need to be practicing social distancing for a while. Frankly, until there is a vaccine, until there is something that provides a definitive prevention uh for COVID nineteen, um, we are always gonna be at risk of localized um epidemics. Um, I think widespread testing is obviously a huge part of, of of the solution so that we can be more be more focal and more localized about those people that we need to quarantine. Um, but you know, we're gonna have to um continue some level of this um for the foreseeable future. Um, it doesn't mean we'll have to be in the massive crack, the massive quarantines that we were back in April. Um, but some form of, of distancing, prevention and um, uh, quarantining will be, um, you know, what the, the matter of the day will be for the next uh, several, several months.
0: Telehealth and Discovery are very big in this. They've got a, a the Discovery Connect. Remember, they did that deal with Vodacom. If you phone the Vodacom number, you can actually get a free consultation. So it does look like, well, that obviously can't continue forever because the doctors have to be paid for that, but it does look like telemedicine is really going to get a big kick from COVID-19.
3: Well, at least you can reach more people. They say in South Africa that people don't have access to it. At least they can talk to somebody who, you know, for smaller things and say, okay, no, but you really need to go to a doctor or you really need to go to a hospital. I think it would be good for South Africa.
0: Now, I grew up in a small town, and uh, when I was a kid, I remember there were house calls from doctors where the doctor would literally come to you. Now, that seems to have ended a long time ago, but – this is almost like bringing back house calls, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is, but it's not, it's not physically. You don't have the cold hands of the doctor.
0: Oh, well, but at least they can connect to you while you're lying in your bed and you don't have to get up and uh, and get even more sick when you go through to the, to the patient uh, or to the waiting room of the doctors. Okay, so let's move on to the next clip that you found on antibodies. Tell us about that.
3: Well, as the previous Bloomberg reporter Joel Weber, said, um, until we have a vaccine, we're going to have this new normal. But what a lot of the Western countries are looking at right now who've gone through it, South Africa would probably not be there yet, but is antibody tests. Which looks for, you know, it's a blood test and it looks for antibodies that you might have had the virus because as you can't test everybody eventually and sometimes when you test they might not have had it but they might get it the next day. Antibodies is what's regarded to be the holy grail of sending people with confidence back to work and it might also lead to some passport that okay, You've had the antibodies. You know they can test you and say, okay, go and fly. It should be fine. Um, What some countries did, the UK bought some kits from China, which were not reliable, so they wasted quite a bit of money there. But they now say they have a reliable kit from Roche, and it's being rolled out now in the UK to the NHS and care workers. Um, But um, the tests are also they also tests available in some pharmacies here. Quite expensive. It's sixty nine pounds a kit, you know, which is which is big for 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 everybody, but which rely on a finger prick that goes to a laboratory, but they don't seem to be so safe. So the clip that I found is from two reporters from Bloomberg who actually went out and had the test, but they're not so sure that it's actually working. They are Joel Weber and healthcare reporter Kristen Brown.
5: I actually did have an antibody test myself because I was curious, even though I know they're worthless. And I think that that's the really interesting thing is even if you're up on the science and you understand that we know that antibodies probably confer some immunity, but we don't know how how much immunity. So it means that the test really isn't gonna change anything about your life, right? You still have to be careful. But they there's this desire to have this feeling that maybe you have some protection against this virus. And I think there's this really interesting thing going on where testing companies, doctors' offices are now sort of preying on that that desire, that hope we all have. You know, several of our Bloomberg colleagues forwarded to me emails they got or text messages they got from their own doctor's office saying, you know, book an antibody test today. We've got them. Even though the science says and good medicine says there's no reason for an individual to get this test because the test isn't gonna change anything about your behavior. You know, I, I should say that it's not that the tests are completely worthless, right? There are some scenarios in which these tests can be very useful. And so it is important that test manufacturers have very good, highly sensitive, highly specific tests. Uh, those, those cases include, you know, public health surveys when we're testing swaths of the population to try and understand, okay, how many people have really had the virus in this community? How many people are asymptomatic? It also includes occupations like healthcare workers or, you know, even people at grocery stores where those people have to be performing their jobs and interacting with a lot of people. And maybe it makes sense to have the people dealing with people who are sick with COVID to be people who have antibodies already because even if we don't a hundred percent know how much immunity they confer at least we're making a more educated guess about who is safer to be on the front lines there so there definitely is some value in these tests just you know probably not to you or me
4: you know what kind of regulations are around
5: for them right now right. yeah so this is a really interesting thing the FDA in March when these tests started coming on the market were like hey, we want you guys to get the test out there as soon as possible. Basically, just go ahead and do it. We're not going to intervene. And what happened, and the FDA has said this, is that they had a bunch of bad actors. They had people marketing tests that they said were FDA approved when they're not. They had people marketing tests that performed really poorly, uh, marketing those really aggressively. And so then last month, the FDA had to step in and sort of walk back their earlier position and say, OK, if you're an antibody test maker, you need to apply to us for an emergency use authorization, which is the same authorization that the diagnostic test makers have to get. So, uh, but that ha- still hasn't right. solved the problem because now we still have all of these tests on the market that are, you know, in the pipeline for approval, but haven't gotten approval yet and are still on the market.
0: Bad actors, (laughs) they'll find a place, uh, the opportunists, even in a crisis like uh, something like COVID-19.
3: That's exactly, that's what we said. There doesn't seem to be a reliable one out there. So, you know, we're waiting, we're waiting for this big one that can tell us all oh, go back to work or say yes you had it or you don't have it and which will actually probably only give us the final number of how many people have had it because they don't know like in the uk they have no idea how many people had it
0: there was going to be a test in the uk sure was it two months ago I remember there was a a lot of media coverage around at that time and then it just faded away
3: Yeah, because the tests weren't reliable. And they say the new one they're giving to the NHS is reliable. Not sure, though. I don't think anybody can say in the U.S., as you said, their people would capitalize more on it and just sell these things. And chemists here are also selling them. And they sold out. If you go on the website, you can't find them. But if they're not reliable, what's the point?
0: Inside COVID-19, from News. Last night, Cyril Ramaphosa told the nation that stage three lockdown is going to be significantly relaxed. Amongst the happiest people in the country will be hoteliers. And one of the biggest hoteliers in South Africa is Anthony Leeming, who's the chief executive of Sun International. Anthony, you've got hotels all over the country. Many of them resort hotels. How are you preparing for the date that people can go off to Sun City or somewhere else and get away from the winter weather?
1: Yeah, after, yeah like, uh, we've been busy preparing for quite a while now, obviously putting all the health and safety procedures in place, making sure we're ready and our environment is clean. And certainly, you know, that's all been taking place and we're ready to start bringing staff back and training. But one challenge we do have is that interprovincial travel is still restricted. So a place like Sun City, we'll have to check whether we're even going to open because if people can't travel there, very little people in the northwest are going to go there. But Houtang certainly is our key market, so we'll have to wait and see. So in different areas, we'll have a different issue, but the big important part for us is the casino has been allowed to open, and that's that's critical.
0: How did that happen? What One thinks of many different opportunities for people to get together in an environment, and you, one of the last places you think of is a casino because you, you do sit around quite close to other punters.
1: Yeah, look, we've uh, made application, obviously, to the government, and we provided them with a comprehensive plan on, on health and safety and how we would make sure the environment's safe. So, firstly, we only allowed holders to come and gamble. We turn off every second slot machine. We put a screen between machines so you will be protected from the person next to you, as well as tables. We're going to control crowds. So get to, if it gets starts getting too busy, we will certainly close down and not allow more people to enter the building. So there's a lot of these hygiene stations. In my view, we are probably safer than your average supermarket where the guys are checking expiry dates and, and picking up and putting things down all the time. So certainly I think our protocols are really good, screening, temperature screening of all staff, temperature screening of customers, the ability to track customers who are there if there is a problem. So we have all the procedures in place, and I think it is a very safe environment. You know, relatively speaking, we all have to deal with COVID and I think we've got to give up our lives and learn to deal with it. How long
0: have you been lobbying government to open casinos?
1: You know, in the first few weeks, you kind of were just thinking, well, it's three weeks it will be OK. And then when it became four or five and the realization of this seems a bit longer, the lobbying process started. Uh, so the tourism industry worked really well together and, and the casinos sort of fell into tourism. We worked through Casa and we worked through also the gaming industry provided them with the protocols that we got in place. And I think we impressed government. We met with the president who really was impressed with the procedures we were planning and we made sure we complied with all requirements of government.
0: And how long ago was that, that you did that meeting?
1: That was probably about a month ago, just under a month ago. And obviously the lobbying, that was with meeting with the president. But prior to that, uh, obviously we had made plenty of submissions, made sure our, our process was reviewed by experts and put submissions into government, into DTI, into the. NCC, Cochter, you name it. We put them in everywhere.
0: Now, the government gets quite a lot of money from gambling. Was that part of the proposal that you put forward to explain how much taxpayers were losing?
1: Absolutely. I think the importance of the industry, I mean, people obviously look at at gambling as maybe not a necessary, But when you look at the amount of people employed, the the spin-offs from gambling, for example, all our big theaters, our arenas, movie houses, shops – While those all can't quite open at the same level currently, but those are all assets that we spend a lot of money on. So they realize, you know, for the industry to be sustainable. And I think even for restaurants, they're realizing they can't provide the support we need to stay closed. And therefore, they have to allow people to be able to operate and try and control the environment. So, yeah, I think it needed to happen.
0: How did you find out the best practices for the protocols that you are implementing?
1: Uh, There was a plethora of information from, you know, what they do overseas, what they do locally, uh, what we did just before lockdown, you know, to try to create distance. Various manufacturers came up with all sorts of plans and and different areas. Everyone now can sell you a scanner. So you had to just sift through and make sure you got the right ones and the right protocols, which we certainly as an industry, casino industry, work together. And on the hotel side, we were part of it with, so with the other industry players in developing the protocols and then double checking against what was available from you know, the, the world's big hotel groups, what they were doing. So really, we, we have got probably the world's best and added on whatever we needed, what we believe was right.
0: So how is the experience going to be different?
1: Well, I think you know, it's going to be, there'll be less sort of entertainment, clearly. You know, we're still not sure whether we can serve alcohol. There will certainly be a lot different different environments on the table, but it will still be people that can, can want to go have a bit of fun, enjoy themselves, will be able to do so. So that will all be there. Clearly, crowds won't be as big. The entertainment angle is going to have to be limited. Probably less, less big promotions, but lots lot smaller promotions on the table. But ultimately, the experience should be fairly similar.
0: So when you arrive at the resort, presumably you'd have to have a mask. You'd have to yeah. have your temperature taken. And and what else?
1: All that applies. You have to fill the form in, uh, these forms that you have to fill in to say where you've been and have you been exposed. But certainly those are the main things. You have to sanitize your hands and go. And so very similar to what you're experiencing in some places. I mean, supermarkets currently, they don't do temper screen. They don't track and trace. So all that because we're only taking card holders. we can do all those procedures quite accurately. And we know who's been on the property, who served you, who's been in contact with you, and we can track that quite carefully. So the very good environment and the controls and procedures are are really good.
0: This is your MVP loyalty card? MVG. MVG Uh loyalty card. How many members do you
1: have? hundreds of thousands, probably about five, six hundred thousand.
0: And you know enough about them to at least know where you can reach them if they are, if they do turn out to be COVID positive?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. They all signed up with contact details. So we know all the contact details They've. So we have all the information we require.
0: And as far as the casinos are concerned, will those who are playing at the casinos have to wear masks?
1: Absolutely. All staff as well as players will have to wear masks or shields. There's shields in front of cashiers. There'll be shields in front of any M B G host. So all that protection equipment will be available. Our staff, same thing procedure. We have isolation rooms available so that should somebody – Come up with a temperature will, will be problematic. and isolate very quickly. That's our staff side as well as the customs side, and there'll be separate entrances and well controlled and secure entrances.
0: Do you have any feeling yet or any insight yet into when you will be able to accept visitors from outside of the provinces?
1: No, not exactly. I think the, the government has been quite cautious in terms of interprovincial travel to try and stop the spread of the, of the virus. So I think that's the risk. We haven't got a lot of clarity on that. It's clearly something we need, and hopefully we can do it by reservation. So if a person's got a reservation number, they should be able to travel. And in that case, you know, we're going to have to lobby a little bit more there and see what we can achieve.
0: So it doesn't mean that I can go and have a game at the Gary Player golf course just because you're opening. You might not even be opening it in the near future.
1: Yeah, unfortunately not. If you've seen the pictures of the course, it really is looking spectacular. We've obviously had to keep maintaining it, keep maintaining the ground. So some cities looking better than ever. There's a bit of wildlife enjoying themselves on, on the property at the moment.
0: What about international tourists?
1: Now, our business, the main source where we have international is, or the main market that we really been dependent on it is, is really the Table Bay in Cape Town. So we're going to have to, in the short term or the medium term, reposition that to look at more local business, because international leisure is going to take some time to come back on. Until flights resume, there's no chance of the international travel. So really, it's going to be a repositioning for the next six 6 to 12 months.
0: So what happens from here? Are you now waiting for government to give you the dates that you can reopen and then trigger, or are you already bringing people back in?
1: We are waiting for the government to get regulations. We can't start operating until we know the regulations. We're not sure exactly when we'll get them, but we do believe by, really by July at the latest we'll be trading.
0: And how many of your staff are on furlough, as they call it internationally?
1: Well, we're currently paying 40% of salary. That will, what staff are getting the higher of the TERS benefit, or 40%, that's from the UIF. So staff are getting – no one's being paid off or for laid off with no work. Clearly, when we go back, we're not going to be at full capacity, so we're going to have to then also lay off staff, and we're in discussions with the union on how we're going to be able to bring people back. We have um, you know, spoken to the union about possible retrenchments. Um, It is a bit of a challenge right now in places like Sun City, Table Bay, as I mentioned, Wild Coast and the like. So we have to do what's right for the business because anyway, we're going to secure long-term jobs and long-term growth.
0: So it it isn't going back to what it was before COVID-19 hit?
1: Yeah, we can't just get all staff back instantly. Clearly, there's... You know, there's going to be a time period until things are back to normal. So we have to, we're trying to get, we've got reduced hours of certain staff. We've agreed with the staff, reduced pay for a short period of time, for a period of time until things improve, as well as then on the union side, we will have to schedule staff a lot less. And where facilities aren't open, for example, Sun City will, you know, they, they're not going to be um, back on full pay. So as things open up, we'll increase the number of people we can employ and the number of people we can bring back. And
0: how many hotels do you have?
1: Our principal hotels are really Sun City, Table Bay, Wild Coast, Maslow, and, and so it's really five. We have a lot of other hotels which really just serve the, the casino client. So those hotels will still open, the small hotels. But in total, we, we've got close on 3,000 hotel rooms around the group, including Sun City, the vacation club units. So it's fairly sizable, but certainly Sun City Dwarfs it takes up most of those rooms. And staff? Staff, we're close to 10,000 around the group. But in a business such as ours, you outsource a lot of housekeeping, cleaning, security. So the dependency on, on our properties is probably close up to 20 to 25,000 direct employees. And then obviously the indirect people servicing the industry through suppliers, and that is, is obviously significant.
0: And when things switch on in the near future, how many of those 20,000 people who are reliant on Sun International are actually going to be able to come back to work?
1: We'll actually have, have to schedule according to the level of activity. And then certainly, you know, with inter travel, we're still not going to open up some cities. So each property is developing their plan based on how many staff return to business. The other factors are, can we serve alcohol? Can't we? How are we going to manage the food? So there's a lot of factors to go into the decide. But I'd say initial stages, you're probably talking about 40 to 50% back and then gearing up depending on, on the level of activity. Inside COVID nineteen from Business
0: Dr. Nolitandu Nimwatsarani is the head of the Center for Clinical Excellence at Discovery. And this new drug, well not new drug, it's a very old drug, dexamethasone, which is now appearing to be pretty useful in treating patients who are badly affected by COVID nineteen. You've had a look at what our government thinks about the trial that's, that's come through from the UK. Just maybe for people who aren't as close to the action, how do these clinical trials work? You
6: will be aware that there are various clinical trials that are currently underway. And in the UK currently, there is a big trial that's called the recovery trial. It actually includes various other medications like dexamethasone, some antiretroviral agents. So there are various drugs that are currently being tested in COVID-positive patients to see if they're going to be effective. So it's not just if the focus is not only on one therapy, because right now we actually do not know which ones will have a better benefit for these patients. So I think it's important firstly to start by understanding that it's a broader trial that's going on and it incorporates many other drugs. So these clinical trials are really, um, I think most of them right now for COVID-19 are using repurposed drugs. So it's drugs that are already registered for other indications and being tested for their various mechanisms of action in these patients to try and see if there is going to be some improvement. And this is mainly in patients who are hospitalised and who are severely ill in hospital with no other options for them to actually get therapy. So dexamethasone was one of those agents that were incorporated into the treatment of critically ill patients in hospital, mainly in ICU and some patients who were, were hospitalized and were on oxygen. So the trials are really provided in the sense that patients will be enrolled. Some will receive the therapy and some will receive standard therapy. And then you will monitor those patients and obviously adjust for various factors that may affect the actual outcome. And based on the outcome, then you can say, once I've adjusted for everything and look now at the outcomes, I can safely say that the effect that I'm seeing is really related to the, to the medication that I've provided and not because of other factors. So in this particular instance, we get this preliminary data relating to dexamethasone. We have not seen the full trial data. It has not yet been released. And I think most Researchers are eagerly waiting full results so that we can make policy decisions that are informed by, you know, the full set of data.
0: How good were the results as a clinician when you look at this?
6: It's very important for specifically for the general public to be aware that this is not therapy that is indicated for people in the out-of-hospital environment. That's the first thing. And even in the patients who were hospitalized, it was not everybody who received benefit. It was mainly patients who were mechanically ventilated where there was a benefit in a third. You know, a third of those patients who were who were ventilated where th- th- there was a, a reduction in mortality, which was a statistically significant improvement and benefit that we are really hoping that it will be sustained over a wider trial base uh, because obviously we need to see this being tested in a larger multi-center trial. And also, you know, we still need to see all the results eh, that eh, relate to this particular one. So the data that we have right now show that. And also they saw a a reduction of a fifth in mortality for those people who were on oxygen, but not necessarily mechanically ventilated.
0: Just from a a layman's point of view, there was a a few thousand people who received dexamethasone, those who were already on ventilators. So they were in in deep trouble from COVID-19 the mortality or the death rate for people on ventilators is pretty high, that actually improved. And a third of those who might otherwise have died recovered.
6: The benefit was a mortality benefit, which is an important thing. So because we're saying those patients were most likely going to die, and a third of those who were mechanically ventilated who would have potentially died, there was a reduction that was as indicated, which was the third. So which is 30% reduction in mortality for patients who were ventilated. With the COVID patients, there are those who will be sick and require oxygen and they will be hospitalized. Not everybody these days will require a ventilator. Some patients will rec- will get oxygen, we refer to high flow nasal air oxygen therapy, and they will be nursed in the prone position, meaning on their tummies to make them better. And then there will be those who are sick enough then to require, you know, mechanical ventilation, meaning they need to be put onto a ventilator. And we know that the outcomes of patients who are ventilated are quite poor because most of those patients are those who are very sick, multi-organ failure, some of them, and some of them usually have uh, serious underlying comorbid conditions, which is why I think the, the results of this study were so significant and resulted in great promise for clinicians because, remember, these are the patients that clinicians struggle with, and this is where their mortality is highest. So to see a 30% what? reduction in mortality is a good thing because, you know, you are saving lives, in, in essence, by using this drug in those patients.
0: Stavros was saying last night that this is a drug that's 70 to 80 years old, yes. it's methamphetamine. Yes. Why would it be working in this particular area when people are really sick uh, with COVID-19?
6: So COVID-19, there is hyperinflammatory syndrome that is noted in these patients, specifically the ones who are very sick. So that inflammatory and it's also in hyperimmune, it's your immune system really in overdrive and re- resulting in this inflammatory process. So dexamethasone has got a very strong anti-inflammatory property that seems to be beneficial in these patients and therefore that is why it, it seems to work um, well for those patients who have got that inflammatory component. And I think if I look at the, at the local critical care guidelines, they had already incorporated, uh, you know, dexamethasone in their protocols uh, for that, for a select group of patients where they are um, suspecting that uh, inflammatory um,
0: component. So it's a, a corticosteroid, which is used as an anti-inflammatory. And in this case, it works. It's like like we spoke before about the BCG, which may, we still don't know yet if that's going to work. We know so little about this COVID-19, don't we, that here out of the blue comes an old drug that that actually has a, a, a very potent impact.
6: And I think it's really about understanding more the pathophysiology and understanding exactly what this virus does once it gets into the system. And I think Clinicians have been observing various aspects, including, you know, the clotting related to issues with COVID-19, the cytokine storm, which is really this heightened immune response to the viral infection itself, and also the inflammatory process that comes with it. And I think as we understand more, then it's really about looking at existing molecules or products that have got these properties that could actually then, you know, assist in managing these patients, specifically in the critically ill patients where we know that mortality is such um, is so high.
0: So what we know about this is that we do make it in South Africa. So that's the good yes. news. There'll be plenty of it. We don't have to ask or beg other countries to give us some of their supplies. We also know that it, it's no use using it before you go into hospital or into critical care. It has absolutely yes. no impact, in the, as the trial showed. However, it has a very good impact for those people who are really sick. Almost the sicker you are from COVID-19, the better the results are from uh, dexamethasone.
6: Yes, no, definitely. And I think, I mean, these are really promising results. And I think there's been great excitement globally. But clinicians and researchers, like I said, we still are waiting for the full trial data. I think maybe there is that level of, of caution That relates to other uh, previously reported results from other drug trials where, you know, we would would like to to exercise caution. And, you know, this is great. I mean, the numbers are not small. But until we get the full trial data and we scrutinize uh, the data, then we can get into policy decisions around, you know, how this then is incorporated widely in broader patient
0: care. But what happens if... You have patients in South African hospitals today, Discovery members, who are very sick from COVID-19. Surely, with the news about dexamethasone, they'll be asking for this. Surely, clinicians will uh, at least be trying it.
6: So, Alec, I mean, as it is, this drug has been used in COVID-19 patients in South African hospitals before even this data came out, and we have been paying. So, today, for patients who are hospitalized, There are various off-label medications that are being tried, and I think there is no block from our side in terms of funding. There are specific ones that are really relatively high cost, where we do uh, review them on a case-by-case basis. But generally, most of these drugs that are used in the ICU setting are covered for by the scheme.
0: This has been episode 49 of Inside COVID-19. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This
4: conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.